welcome to episode 77. Many thanks for tapping that little triangle that points to the right to play or download this labor of love. Whether it's your first listen or your 77th, you're taking time out of your morning, afternoon, or evening, as the case may be, so I am in your debt. I'm also your host, Frank, and this is Silver Screeners. Hey, guess what? The annual Oscar nominations will be announced on Tuesday, January 24th, and once the list of nominees is made public, I'll be sticking to it closer than that Elvis accent to Austin Butler at the Golden Globes this week. Last year at this time, I did a series of episodes on Oscar winners and contenders of the past. Stay tuned for whatever it is that I decide on for this award season. In the meantime, for this episode, let's break the chains of convention. In movie buff circles, November is a month-long celebration of that indescribable genre known as film noir. I did an episode on double indemnity and sorry wrong number at that time, but who made up the rule that you can't talk about more noir in these January days of winter? What's wrong with noir in January? Is there anything wrong with noir in January? Is there a law against noir in January? Will the podcast police descend on me and my laptop like Mariah Carey to a three-way mirror if we talk noir in January? It's fun to talk noir in January, especially when it's with return guest Chris from the podcast The Movie Psycho. Specifically, we are looking at 1949's The Third Man and 1958's Touch of Evil. But if you're presently thinking, I clicked on that little triangle that points to the right to hear about black and white films from the mid-20th century. <coughs> Yo, chillax, before you throw me and Chris and this show before a rhetorical firing squad of verbal daggers and complaints, just breathe and call to mind the inspiring words of actress Lauren Bacall. It's not an old movie, if you haven't seen it. As is usually the case when a guest comes on, our talk is pre-recorded, so once it wraps up, stick around because there'll be the usual poll results and listener trivia segment with shout-outs. You don't want to miss those. So, here is an Orson Welles twofer with me and Chris from The Movie Psycho. Hey, Chris. Welcome back to Silver Screeners. It is great to have you on again. Well, thanks, Frank. It's good to be back on. I'm always excited to be back on Silver Screeners, one of my favorite podcasts. Well, I want to make sure that, Chris, you get the credit that you deserve for the concept of this particular episode. I had made an episode about a month and a half ago on film noir and the gangster genre. I looked at films like Double Indemnity and Sorry, Wrong Number. And we were talking after that. You mentioned Orson Welles. You mentioned The Third Man. You asked me if I'd be doing another film noir episode, I think is what it was, actually. And I said, yeah, I probably will. And here we are. I said, hey, why don't you come on? And we're going back and forth with different film titles. This is what we settled on. Both your suggestions, The Third Man from 1949 and Touch of Evil from 1958. Look at there. I got something right. (laughs) (laughs) Let's talk about The Third Man first, and let's begin by saying this. The British Film Institute called The Third Man the greatest film ever to come out of the UK in 1999, meaning in 1999 they said this. And the American Film Institute, they labeled it the 57th best American film the year before in 98. It was co-produced by a British producer and an American producer. So there's the, the dual parentage, I guess you could say. And in Austria, there's even an entire museum in Vienna dedicated solely to this film. There's also a a movie theater in Austria, or I'm sorry, there's also a movie theater in Vienna. I should remember that because I like the Billy Joel song. But there's a movie theater that plays (laughs) The Third Man three times a week, all year long. Travel to Vienna just to watch that in a movie theater. That's amazing when you think of three times a week, all year long. That's yeah, that's fandom. I'm jealous. <laughs> my, my little city here would never, they wouldn't show it one time in a decade. <laughs> they would be like, the third man, what the hell are you talking about, the third man? <laughs> oh, God, that's too funny. So the film opens on a dissolved shot of Big Ben in London proudly standing to the left in all of its glory, and to the right, in the sky, you have the credit, a London film production. Then we dissolve to an extreme close-up of a zither, with the strings being plucked, playing a jazzy, funky little ditty. I don't know, how would you describe that music? It's definitely a cheerful tune. I will say, I don't know 
we're going to get to this later or not, but the music is one of the things in this movie that lends itself to some of the uncomfortableness in the movie. This is a film noir. I mean, it's a dark subject matter. And when you find out what's happening and everything about Harry Lime and all that stuff, you still have this music that doesn't really play into that. Like a normal movie, you would expect sort of this orchestral soundtrack with these dark undertones to kind of cue you that this is a part of the movie that's, you know, you're gearing up for this dark moment or this reveal of a character, whereas this music doesn't really play to that. And it's it's not distracting it just confuses your brain, especially us now in this time frame, because we're so used to musical cues and movies and stuff like that. So when you're you're kind of listening for that, but it's never there. And it kind of lends itself to all the directorial stuff with the Dutch angles and the, even the location of Vienna post-World War II and how almost otherworldly it is. It always has you on the edge or just it has you on edge. You just you can't really get comfortable in the movie. And that's the way the movie wants you to be. It doesn't want you to be comfortable. You're following Holly and he's in a whole different universe and you're kind of playing along with his uncomfortableness in this totally alien world to him. I really do love The Third Man. I think this is an absolutely amazing movie. We could talk for hours about this movie, just all the cool technical stuff and how it all. Like I said, I watched it the other night prepping for this. And when that music starts playing, you're like, this just doesn't feel right. But not in a way where you're like, oh my God, this is distracting and I don't like it. It was more like, I can't get settled into the movie. Does that make sense? It's like the musical tone seems incongruous with the rest of the film. Is that what you mean? Right. Yeah, kind of like that. Like your brain is saying, oh, this is cheerful music. But then you're listening to the dialogue and what's going on. You're like, this, it doesn't, but it's supposed to do that. It's supposed to kind of clash that way, which is one of the amazing things about this movie. If I can reference one of our other episodes we spoke on, <laughs> and you should go back and listen to it, our Psycho Talk. <laughs> when that first that intro is very because I know when we talked about the movie, the very first scene in Psycho is this very normal couple and this other, but you've got that was it Bernard Herman? Is that right? Yep, Bernard Herman that did the score, score. That's just that score with them strings just screeching at you, and so your brain and and what you're seeing and what you're hearing are just fighting with each other. That kind of feels like that with the third man, and it's interesting because God, I can't believe I'm going this far off on. We haven't even started. This is cracking me up. It's amazing because it's, like I said, the music through the whole thing is just, I forget the musician's name, but he plays that, was it Zitar? Is that how you say it? And that's basically the whole musical score to the movie. So it just feels different when, especially with these noir movies, because you're used to that sort of foreboding music cueing you in on things. So anybody still listening? <laughs> We're about to get to the opening scenes of the movie. <laughs> <laughs> Well, first of all, it's Anton Karras who does the music. Thank you. And Thank you. this guy's worth his salt because this tune's got rhythm. It's catchy. It really is catchy. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. So I suppose that we Again, should... Again, it's just a peppy tune. Peppy, but not overly. Not overly. Yeah, it's not like a... It's yeah, something like that, sappy or anything. It's just for what you're going into in this movie. I don't know. I don't know how to explain it. It's cool. I'm not saying it in a negative way. I'm like, it's just yeah, the whole movie. I was just like, ah, this is so neat that they did it this way. Clever. We don't get that much anymore in movies. No, no, you don't. So let's begin at the beginning. Touch of Evil and The Third Man are both prime examples of a type of film known as film noir. And I know that I touched on a lot of this in my previous film noir episode, but the gist of it is, is that in the immediate post-World War II years, or maybe I should say, during and after the world, the world War II years, there was this growing cynicism in the United States, I would imagine globally as well, but as far as American films go. With this jaded cynicism came this disillusionment with the promise of the American dream. So many reasons for that. I mean, all the controversy about Hiroshima and Nagasaki, the Japanese internment camps in the States. All of these different controversial topics blended in with all of this forced patriotism, buying war bonds. And so after going through all those years of hell and losing God knows how many people, a second world war that occurs only 30 years after the first one, this was unprecedented in human history. So there was this overwhelming sense of where is the rock bottom? If we survived this, is it possible to survive anything else? 
there was this sense of the American dream is not what it's made out to be. And that's what film noir set out to depict, really, because most characters in films noir, they are loners, social misfits, rebels. In some ways, they're criminals. They're not people who feel that better days are ahead. They feel that this is as good as it gets. And so in order to attain any kind of pleasure in life, they will do anything. Morals be damned. If that means that I have to kill someone to make some money, if that means I have to turn to smuggling, if that means I have to turn to bootlegging, well, depending on when the story takes place, you always have criminal activity taking place in these films. The criminal activity is a very crucial element because it shows just how low they're willing to stoop in order to get what they want out of life. And they're usually misguided with what they want out of life. Money, a woman. So you always have the male lead as sort of an anti-hero. He's cynical. He's wisecracking. A lot of times misogynistic. And a lot of times you have the leading female character who is what's called the femme fatale. And she defies society's expectations of her as a wife, in some cases even as a mother. She is out for herself. She wants to reclaim some personal power over her circumstances. And she's sultry. She uses her sexuality to entice the, the hapless fool into doing her dirty work for her. So he thinks he's getting money. He thinks he's getting the woman. And in the end, he gets neither. Film Noir was very, it was a very pessimistic portrayal of life in the 1940s. And it's called film noir for a reason, both aesthetically as well as the overall tone of the story. These are dark stories, aesthetically common tropes of the genre, cigarette smoking, dark shadows, hanging out in dimly lit bars or in, or in alleyways, and people who are just struggling for some sense of satisfaction in life, satisfaction that they never really quite attain. Not every film noir is the same. For example, I wouldn't say that Touch of Evil or The Third Man really has a femme fatale character, but a lot of the other elements certainly fit into play. Very stylized camera work. It's a lot of style plus a lot of substance. It's the best of both worlds. God, they nail it with this movie. The Third Man is just incredible. If you have not seen The Third Man, just be aware we are going to be talking about the whole film. So, spoiler alert, now. So after the close-up of the zither throughout the opening credits, playing that funky little ditty, according to the credits, as we mentioned, it's Anton Karras playing it. And the credits wrap up. We dissolve to an aerial shot of Vienna, Austria, with the title card proclaiming Vienna. Then the film's director, Carol Reed, begins with his voiceover narration as we're treated to a series of cut-to shots of statues and monuments all throughout Vienna. But the narration... Anybody out there listens to my podcast, you know I'm not a big fan of narration. I understand in film noir, it's always part of it. I think this narration is extremely important because even if you are a fan or if you know history, a lot of people don't really pay attention to things that happened after World War II. There was stuff that I didn't really realize, but how Vienna was split up amongst the Allies after the war and the there were all these different police forces there and working together and all that stuff. It was one of those narrations where you're like, okay, I need to know this information. This isn't just someone spouting off some prose that's a writer was like, oh, I got to have this on screen. This is something you really need to pay attention to because it makes sense through the whole movie. Well, like you said, some of the stuff that he does mention in his opening monologue, it's, it's a very conversational monologue, which surprised me. It wasn't normally paced. It was very conversational. He was speaking quickly. He was tripping over some of his words. It was it had a very natural feel to it. But basically what he was saying was he never really knew the old Vienna before the war. Constantinople always suited him better. Is there a song for Constantinople? Istanbul. Yeah, it used to be Constantinople. <laughs> yeah, that one. Oh, let's not do that one. If that gets stuck in my head. I will be a movie psycho. <laughs> How's that for an airworm? The narrator says he got to know Vienna through his involvement in the black market. He refers to how amateurs tried I got to, to know Vienna through Billy Joel. <laughs> I got to stop. I'm going to stop. I'm sorry. Frank, continue on. I'm sorry. I got, all right. We got to. This is serious stuff here we're talking about. This it's is okay. Orson Welles. We got to. It's okay. You didn't stop the fire. <laughs> very good. Thank you very much. He refers to how amateurs tried to make it in the same career, racketeering, but they always end up dead. 
And he goes on to talk about how the city, Chris, as you were saying, the city of Vienna is divided into four zones, the French, the Russians, the Americans, and the British. But at the center is the international police, and he sarcastically laughs. How wonderful. None of them speak the same language, and they're all strangers to the city. And then he goes on to tell us that there is an American man, a childhood friend named Holly Martins, played by Joseph Cotton, who's a writer of Westerns but needs a job desperately. He arrives in Vienna. Vienna waits for you, Holly. <laughs> at the invitation of a friend of his named Harry Lime, played by Orson Welles. He looks around for Lime and comments, oh, I thought he would meet me here at the train station. So upon his arrival in Vienna, he discovers that Lime had seemingly been killed shortly beforehand. But he soon finds out through investigating with Lime's girlfriend, Anna, played by Alita Valley, that his old pal had been stealing and diluting penicillin from military hospitals, leading to the death of children, and that Lime, indelibly played by Orson Welles, is still alive. So, in a nutshell, that is the premise of The Third Man. Now, there is a heck of a lot that I don't want to give away because that would really be doing the film an injustice. It's much more of an intricate plot than you would realize. As I say all the time, there are two kinds of movies. Those you can fold laundry by, those you cannot. And this is definitely one you cannot. You need to be ready to watch a film where you'll be expected to remember a lot of details. It's a great cast. I mentioned some of them already. Austin Wells, Joseph Cotton, Alita Valley, and there's also Trevor Howard in a great supporting role. So, Chris, let me ask you, what are your general impressions of The Third Man, your likes, your dislikes? If anybody listening didn't know from my opening rant, <laughs> I love this movie. It's just one of those movies, the look of it is absolutely amazing. It fits right in that film noir look with the shadow. I mean, I actually think this is the top peak of that film noir look. It's the way Carol Reed uses the shadows. And again, he uses them Dutch angles and all the weird angles and the low angles and just everything feels like you're in this dark world. But again, except for the soundtrack, which again, throws you off everything. As I mentioned earlier, everything makes you feel uncomfortable in this movie. And I don't really have a dislike for it. There's nothing I can say that's negative to it. And then, I mean, is there a better intro to a character in a movie than Orson Welles when he's in the shadows and Holly's yelling at him, Lime, is that you? And then that lady throws the light switch on in her apartment and it just beams right on his face and he's got that smug Orson Welles look on him. I mean, that's just classic. That's perfection. And then you have the whole chase and sewers at the end. Oh, my God. Frank, this is the, one of the best movies that I've ever seen, period. End of story. I love it. How was that? Was that good enough? That was great. <laughs> my only negative is... It was. It could have went on for another hour, and I still would have been happy with it. I guess if we were to really get into it. I love the way that it's set up in a way. Like when Holly, you first meet Holly, and you don't meet Harry Lime Orson Welles until God, he's almost to the very almost the end, right? About forty-five minutes into the movie or so, he's only in it for like five minutes or something. But the beginning, the whole movie, I saw this little clip of an interview with. I want to say it was Peter Bogdanovich, another famous director. Who knew oh, Orson? Yeah, yeah. And he said that he was talking to Orson Welles about Harry Lyme and that character. And Orson Welles tells him that's the best movie star character ever. And he was like, What do you mean that's the best movie character ever? He's only in a little bit of the movie. He's like, Yes, but the whole first two thirds of the movie, everybody's constantly talking about Harry Lyme. So everybody wants to know all about the mysterious Harry Lyme. And then when I come on, they're like, There he is. Oh my God, it's Harry Lyme. And I'm already built up to be the star of the movie and I haven't even been in most of it. So I thought that was a cool line, but that's kind of how it is because Holly starts out telling you about his friend. So very early on, you have one image. You learn from Anna a little bit more about Harry Lyme, but he isn't this guy that his friend Holly, who hasn't seen him in years, knows. So now Holly's kind of, he's getting a little more confused. And then you, you get Trevor Howard's Major Calloway who really lays it on what Harry Lyme is really like. And even Anna isn't aware of some of Harry's dealings. So you get this character that goes from sort of where you're rooting for Holly to find his buddy. You're like, hey, I hope he finds his buddy. And what happened to him? Oh, my God, he died. Oh, that's horrible. Now you're like, wait a minute, this guy wasn't that great. Oh, my God, this guy was horrible. And then you meet him at the end. And Orson Welles, oh God, we could just talk about Orson Welles all fucking night. <laughs> I love Orson Welles. And he is just so great in this movie. And, you know, just the way he plays Harry Lyme and he starts out with that smell. I guess 
that you first see him, he's got that smug. And I mean, it's just the cool. I'm sorry. It is a cool shot. I, if I could have a moment in my life where I look as cool as Orson Welles does, that shot hits and the light hits him in the face. He's just got that grin. And you're like, yeah, that guy's awesome. And then when they got him, I'm rambling too much. I'm sorry, Frank. I don't mean to take over your podcast here. <laughs> no, not at all. Not at all. No, I'm listening. Oh, okay. All right. All right. Good. But then when they get to the uh, Ferris wheel and that whole, God, that scene. I don't, I don't want to be that person. Oh, and then this happened and this happened, but I, I don't know. I'm just rambling now. I love everything about this way this movie's constructed. The script is amazing. The dialogue, it's got that snappy feel to it. It's got wit. Holly is very, he's got the one-liners and a little sarcastic banter between him and Major Calloway and uh, who's Bernard Lee plays the, was it the sergeant? Yeah. That's assigned to watch him. Yeah, they have some good banter back and forth. Once Orson Welles comes in, he just kind of steals the movie from you. And then again, you got the great, I mean, that's a famous scene is them chasing Harry Lyme through the uh, sewers in Vienna because it waits for you. But they give <laughs> tours. Do you know, I think maybe, did you mention this? But they give tours under that sewer of the locations that they uh, used if you go over to Vienna. Which uh, You can know. go walking through the sewer system. Yeah, which is a bit weird, I would think. But I think I'll pass them away from the YouTube video. Yeah. <laughs> but it's, it's just great. The way that whole chase on it is edited. I mean, this might be one of those movies that's perfect. I don't. I can't find a fault in it. And then the way it ends, it's just the perfect film noir ending where Holly has a choice to go get on the airplane and fly back to America or he can stay and he thinks he's going to win over Anne, and he's standing on one side of the road and she just keeps walking right past him on the other side of the road and you're just like yep you're not going to get the girl she doesn't like you now <laughs> that was a sick burn no and it's a tight movie there was no fat on it everything you need to know is pushing this movie along it's just have I gushed about it enough I really I love this movie. so let me ask you this then on a scale from one to ten Taking into consideration everything, the acting, the directing, the script, the cinematography, everything about it, the music, what would you give the third man on a scale from one to 10? Oh, hell with it. I'm going with a 10. Really? <laughs> and I, don't, I do not give that way a lot. I watched wow. it again. When we did this and I prepped for it, I was just like, I started taking notes and I just stopped. I was like, I, I got to watch this movie. <laughs> I don't care about the notes. Frank can crush me on the podcast all he wants, but I'm watching this damn movie. <laughs> I think part of it, Frank, is that and uh, for any of you listeners that haven't heard of my little podcast, please go listen to it. But I do a lot of reviews of newer stuff, whereas Frank is wonderful at telling us about classic movies. I'm not going to say old movies. And he gets me every time I listen to his podcast, I'm like, oh, man, I got to go watch that movie now because Frank has just talked me right into it. But I watch a lot of newer stuff and a lot of the newer stuff is not very good. And then when you watch something like this where everything is just perfectly constructed and meshed together, I think looking back at it, I appreciate it more now. Does that make sense? It's something I look at and go, oh, my God, they could do this. in what was it? 1948, 49. They could put this together with this kind of script. Why can't we do that today? <laughs> you might get three movies like this a year if you're lucky or close to it. I shouldn't say like this, but I know I'm gushing right now. I just, I love this flick. This actually might be a good transition into Touch of Evil. Okay. Let me ask you this. Third Man, Touch of Evil, if you had to pick one and only one, if you were not allowed to tie, which one would you go with? I would go third. And that, that hurts my heart. It hurts my heart because I love Orson Welles as a director. And I think from a technical side, what he does in Touch of Evil is really amazing, and we'll get to it. But there are things with that movie that are a little wonky for reasons, because they fired him from doing any of the editing at that point. So somebody else came in and reshot some scenes and edited the movie together. So it makes sense why it would be a little wonky. So maybe if they'd have let Orson make his movie, I would probably put it higher. But for me, the third man, is just it's so tight. I mean, it just just works all the way through it and it, it there's nothing in it where you're like okay let's get back to the movie you're just like oh my god what's gonna happen next even when i'm watching it again and you know what's gonna happen you're like, man how did they think to do that or how did that's so smart that they did that angle or they put that music there or the way the shadows play it just ah wow chef's kiss wow but how do you really feel <laughs> that's why i wanted you to talk about it <laughs> you drove me onto this podcast just, just to ramble on. <laughs> uh, you know, just, I will say, how many have we done together? This is our fifth collaboration. All right. And uh, this right. is 
I think the quietest I've heard Frank in any of them. And I mean that as a compliment. <laughs> it's a tribute to you because I'm just appreciating the enthusiasm you're bringing to this. Uh, I, I love this movie. I mean, I went through, if I could delve into my past, I, I had a class in college where we did film history and criticism so I could get an easy A. And um, I'm not sure about you, Frank. We're kind of the same age. But as you're growing up, you always hear about the greatest movies ever. And everybody, Citizen Kane, Citizen Kane, Citizen Kane. So as you're a kid and you grew up as a Star Wars fan, you're like, black and white movie, how can it be better than Star Wars, right? So fortunately for me, I never watched it as a kid or a teenager. And then I got to that class and the teacher or professor explained the history of that movie and what Orson Welles did. So then when I watched the movie and they showed it in class, I was like, okay, I get it. I get why this is so highly regarded and why people say this might be the best movie ever. And ever since then, I kind of, I went through an Orson Welles phase right there for a little while. I saw a lot of stuff, kind of delved in it. And I really haven't really delved back into that. But when you invited me back on and I started watching Third Man and then I watched Touch of Eli, I started listening to interviews with him. And I'm like, God, I got to go back and watch some of these other movies. He was just such a character and everything he did is just so unique and interesting. And we really don't have anything like that anymore in Hollywood. So I should thank you for pulling me onto the show so I can, in a good way, I don't mean that in a bad way. So I would have to watch this stuff again. Again, when you watch a lot of stuff nowadays and then you just look at this stuff back then and you're like, God, why can't we do this now? And, and, and again, with Orson Welles, he was just such a character. Anybody out there, if you don't know Orson Welles very well or go back and watch his interviews with, oh, he's been on all kind of different. It's just an amazing life and just an amazing, interesting stories he has. We could go on and on and on and talk about Orson Welles. And just, again, the stuff he did in cinema that he was doing in, again, Citizen Kane, we'll get to Touch of Evil with the camera and the editing and all that. Is stuff that we see in movies now, and we just take it for granted. And he just basically, for the most part, he came up with a lot of stuff. And he'll say it as a collaboration with other people he was working with, but just the uniqueness of doing it. One of the interviews I was listening to him, they asked, they're like, well, how did you come up with these things and come up with this? And he was like, well, when I first got my first movie, I didn't know anything about movies and how cameras worked. And fortunately, I had a great cameraman. And he would tell me, well, you're not supposed to do it this way, but if you want to. And he's like, well... I don't know any better. Let's do it that way. And that just sort of changed cinema. So I don't know. I'm gushing. I, I just, I think Orson Welles is really an amazing, interesting human being that I, again, I have to thank you for. He kind of fell to the back of my brain and now he's pushed back to the front. He's one of the people that, uh, especially after listening to the interviews, you know how someone will ask you, well, if you could have dinner with someone who's dead or alive from history, who would you have? And I have my list. And after researching this stuff, I was like, man, I think Orson Welles might be high up there. <laughs> <laughs> I remember the first time that I ever saw Orson Welles in anything. It was actually later on, and it was a documentary. It wasn't a film. It was a documentary on Nostradamus. And I remember seeing him on an episode of I Love Lucy, where he was doing magic tricks. So, yeah, he loved magic. So to me, he was the guy from I Love Lucy and the guy who scared the shit out of me, thinking that the world was going to end by 1994. Yeah, yeah we all believed it too. Well. Well, before we go into Touch of Evil, I do have a couple of fun facts about the third man. I guess that you probably already know them, <laughs> given your... Uh, you know, <laughs> maybe not. Maybe not. Well, here's the first one I have. The director of the third man, Carol Reed. His original choice for the character of Holly Martins was James Stewart. But the American producer, David O. Selznick, he had Joseph Cotton under contract insisted on using him, and ironically, Selznick objected to Reed's choice of Cotton's longtime collaborator, Orson Welles, to play Harry Lyme. Selznick called Welles, quote, box office poison, end quote, and pursued none other than Cary Grant instead. Reed got his way, but Grant would become a frequent visitor to the set. The actor was filming I Was a Male War Bride on the next door stage at Shepparton. I don't think Cary Grant would work. Oh, God, no. No, 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 no. He was great at what he did, but film noir was not his his forte. As much as I love Joseph Cotton, I could see Jimmy Stewart doing it, especially at that that point in his career. I could see him because this is sort of a everyman, straight laced kind of guy. I can understand that. I think Jimmy Stewart had charisma of his own. Joseph Cotton had charisma of his own. They were not the same kinds. They were not the same quality. Joseph Cotton, I think, was someone, he was not glamorous, so I think that was very much in his favor. And in terms of the type of characters he played, 
I think, right. you know, Citizen Kane, Uncle Charlie and Shadow of a Doubt, Under Capricorn, the other Hitchcock movie he did. I'm having trouble coming up with the right word or the right description of Joseph Cotton's Everyman quality. So I think I'm just going to stop trying. Well, I'll I mean, say that I he's... yeah, I understand what you're saying. The one thing that I think if Jimmy Stewart had the role as opposed to Joseph Cotton is that if you're watching the movie, you would think there's Jimmy Stewart in this movie. Whereas Joseph Cotton, you think more that, hey, there's Holly trying to solve this mystery. His fame doesn't precede his character. As much as he is Harry Lyme and as cool as he is, when he comes on, you're like, there's Orson Welles. And, you know, if it was Jimmy Stewart coming off and trying to find his buddy, you'd be like, oh, Jimmy Stewart's trying to find his buddy. Whereas with Joseph Cotton, you're like, okay, I'm invested in this character, not the actor. But I could see Jimmy Stewart doing it. I think he could pull it off for me. But not just, again, not to say anything bad about Joseph. I think Joseph Cotton, everything in this movie is just, you know, you know how I feel. I've already ranted about it. I got to stop. I got to stop. <laughs> we need to move on to the, <laughs> what's the next trivia? You want me to throw one out there? Or you want to throw one out? Oh, you go ahead. We'll alternate. Okay. So we spoke of the unique use by Carol Reed of the Dutch angles and the many angles that he used throughout the movie. Well, at the end of the movie, the crew bought him a level to put on his camera so that he would stop using angles. <laughs> you may now proceed with your other fun fact, because that was my other one. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, I, got, I got a few of them. I am Orson Welles, as I mentioned, he's only in five minutes in the movie. He only worked one week. He wouldn't do any of the sewer shots on location because he did not want to be down in that disgusting sewer. So they built a set in London or England for him to be on. He also didn't believe this movie would be very successful. He was offered either a part of the gross of the movie or else he would get a flat salary. So he took a flat salary. The movie became a hit and he kind of lost a little bit of money on that. <laughs> Always a gamble. Yep. Okay, well, that was my third fun fact, so you may as well finish. Oh, all right, I might as well continue. Uh, let's see. Martin Scorsese is a big fan of the movie, wrote a thesis on it, and got a B plus. The professor said, forget about it. It's just a thriller. <laughs> oh, jeez. Wow. My last one. And I didn't mean to monopolize this. My last one, and thank God they never did this. Hey, like, we should all thank the movie guys that this never happened. As much as I love the director that was probably going to do it, but they were going to remake the movie, I think in the 90s, John McTiernan who was, really was a great director, did Die Hard, Predator, Thomas Crown Affair, remember that? And it was going to star Liam Neeson and Ewan McGregor. But fortunately, someone somewhere <laughs> had a brain cell and said, no, let's not do that. The movie is already perfect as it is. You have a good script. You got some good actors. You have a director that's willing to take a few chances. And boom, you got a good movie. Well, speaking of good movies, let's pivot towards Touch of Evil, because this one, there's a lot to unpack here. Touch of Evil is based on the book by Whit Masterson with a screenplay by Orson Welles himself. So this one has a somewhat troubled history. In 1957, Orson Welles finished production on Touch of Evil. The studio took a look at his cut of it and said, No! <laughs> the studio tampered with it, they shot additional footage, and they re-edited the whole thing. Two additional writers were brought on for the reshoots. The names were Franklin Cohen and Paul Monash. But once Wells saw the revised studio cut, he sat down and he wrote a strongly worded 58-page memo asking for editorial changes. The DVD version that I have, it says in an opening scroll, this version is an attempt to honor those requests and make Touch of Evil the film that Orson Welles envisioned it to be. And then they had a fade-in of a portion of the letter, the closing of the letter that he wrote to the studio. He said, I close this memo with a very earnest plea that you consent to this brief visual pattern to which I gave so many long, hard days of work. As it turned out, this would be the last time that Wells ever directed a Hollywood picture. I'll say right now that this has what is, in my personal humble opinion, one of the most impressively choreographed opening sequences ever committed to celluloid. Oh, hell yeah. Oh, hell yeah. Another chef kiss. Ah. Three minutes, 20 seconds long, continuous tracking shot, brain shot, like you said, long shots, close-ups, zoom-ins, zoom-outs, everything you can imagine. And shout-out to the cinematographer, Russell Meddy, who delivers the photographic goods, not just here, but throughout the entire film. Yes. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> you <told> him, <laughs> I, I didn't know if I was going to step on you there or not, so I was just kind of like, it. So we fade in first to a close-up of a ticking bomb. An unidentified guy brings it over to a really sweet-looking automobile. He opens the trunk, puts the bomb inside, 
and then a man named Rudy Winnicka, played by Jeffrey Green, and a woman, she's supposed to be a stripper that Rudy is presumably picked up. So I do have a question about this opening in this tracking shot. Oh, so the man so and the woman approach the car and they get inside. And the guy who just put the bomb in the trunk, he notices them. He stands straight up, turns around and bolts away like a bat out of hell, just as they're opening the doors and they didn't notice a thing. Well, I'm talking? sure the man didn't because he is there with a lovely young stripper. And so that probably had all of his attention right there. Fair and enough. she didn't seem to be and i'm trying to put this as kindly as possible maybe the sharpest tool in the shed <laughs> <laughs> i like to say a few bricks short of a load <laughs> so they start the ignition and they slowly drive out of their space and into the main street of this town that's on the u.s mexico border and it's a pretty unsavory town it's called los robles it's a fictional town the camera glides and pans as we see a cop directing traffic then we see another couple, Mike Vargas, played by Charlton Heston, and his wife Susan, played by Janet Lee. They're newlyweds, and like any amorous husband and wife hot off of exchanging their vows, they're in search of a chocolate soda. <laughs> I'd prefer a bottle of wine myself, but hey, you do you. So Vargas is a Mexican drug enforcement official, which means that, unfortunately, yeah, modern-day audiences will face the reality that he's wearing skin-darkening makeup. She's American, and they're walking arm and arm down the street as that sweet-looking car driven by Rudy and the stripper drives past, with the stripper trying to convince anyone who will lend her an ear that she hears a ticking noise. Wouldn't you think that if somebody reports a ticking noise at the border between any two countries, that it might make the officials letting them through want to say, yeah. let's look into this? She I'll even, agree with you. She even says it's coming and, from back there, gesturing to the yeah, front. but... The way they talk to her, it's very dismissive. They're just like, yeah, yeah. Like she's, God, I hate to be, you know, trying to defend these guys. But I guess back then they would just be like, oh, she's just some ditzy blonde stripper. What the hell does she know? She's probably drunk off her ass or something. You know, they're just very dismissive of her, which yeah. ultimately was not a wise choice. They should have listened to her. But that was my take on the scene is that they were just like, ah, whatever. But hey, if there's a chocolate soda on the line. <laughs> gotta get your priorities straight you know that's right that's right so rudy and the stripper drive off leaving vargas and susan whispering sweet nothings in each other's ears as they commence lip lock but their moment of passion blows up in their faces literally as the sweet looking car also explodes and it's at that precise moment when the long uninterrupted tracking shot that opens the film ends we cut to a shot of the sweet looking car engulfed in flames can you imagine the painstaking detail that setting up that entire opening sequence that must have been like? Oh, yeah. yeah One false was... move, and you can bet that Wells would have taken that guy's sorry ass right to the gallows. Not to give away some of my trivia, but <laughs> what I've read was that it took all night to film that. Because like you said, it's one tracking shot. So you have to do everything precisely. And that's a very complicated tracking shot because people are moving in and out. The car's moving out. Charlton Heston and Janet Lee are weaving, weaving in and out with the car. They said that they, when they got to, the, I think, the Border Patrol, the actor kept flubbing his line at the very end. When they got to the end, and if you watch the movie, you can see the sun is actually coming up behind them as they first start the tracking shot. It's kind yeah. of getting lighter in the background. So before they did the last take, Orson Welles said to the actor, if you forget your line, just move your mouth and we'll dub it in later. And for God's sakes, whatever you do, don't say, I'm sorry, Mr. Wells. <laughs> <laughs> and they ended up dubbing it in. Did they? Okay. He messed it up again. He couldn't get it right. You would think all <laughs> night you would get it right. Well, Mike runs towards the explosion with Susan not too far behind. Now, this is where I have to laugh. The dialogue that was written here for them. So he's running toward the burning car, and she's running after him. And she calls out. And they, they were both together, standing in the same spot, lip to lip, when the car exploded. Right, right. And they both turned and looked at the explosion. So she's running after him, and she calls out, what happened? And then he yells back behind him at her, that car just exploded. Really, Columbo? <laughs> I mean, what? She wanted that chocolate soda. That's all that was on her mind was that chocolate soda. <laughs> well, that's what we have Austin Wells into the picture. He plays the American sheriff, Hank Quinlan. He's ginormous, he's sweaty, and he looms over the camera like Homer Simpson over a donut. Quinlan takes charge, he intuits, as he puts it, that the explosion was caused by dynamite. 
Vargas finds himself drawn into the investigation. That pisses Quinlan off to no end. And the movie becomes sort of a competition between the two of them, leading to Quinlan's efforts to frame Vargas and Susan on drug and murder charges. But before that competition is even established, Susan has a pretty weird encounter. Vargas sends her back to the hotel to wait for him while he investigates. And along the way, she's approached by a young, good-looking Mexican man who apparently doesn't speak any English. She feels that he's pushing himself on her. He's actually got other things in his mind, though, than her. An older man joins them, and they give her a note saying that they have something for her husband. So she willingly goes with them inside a building, where it's revealed that the older man is actually a slimy local crime boss named Grandy, played by Akeem Tamaroff. She recognizes the name Grandy as belonging to a man named Vic, a drug criminal her husband is putting on trial. This older man is Vic's brother. That's why they have the same last name. The younger man is his nephew, Vic's son. They don't touch her. They don't threaten her. They do not coerce her into doing anything, but they do say that what they have for her is advice for her husband. Let Vic go. She leaves, but not before verbally lashing into them like a wood chipper. She's got a natural aggression that comes out in fire and leaves nothing but smoking ash in her wake. Pretty strong character. What are your thoughts on Touch of Evil? All right, Touch of Evil. I love this movie. I don't want to put it as high as the third man, obviously. I think from okay. a technical aspect, Orson Welles does amazing things in this movie. Uh, also from, you know, just the acting. Everything works really well in the movie. But if I had to pull negatives, I think, again, there's things in this movie where you're kind of like, okay, this isn't something someone would do. You talk about Janet Lee when she meets the uh, Grande brother and the nephew. I mean, she's an American in this Mexican city. She doesn't speak Spanish. They just hand her a note and she just goes with them. You know, you're, you're thinking, okay, this is, and the nephew's got the typical fifties leather jacket and, you know, he's kind of a rough kid looking guy. You, you know, like this is a blonde American woman. And I'm like, she's not going to, that's not good. Especially when you're married to this high ranking DA or, or DEA guy in Mexico. So there's stuff through that little stuff here and there. Not that it tears the movie down where you're like, oh my God, this movie's all because it's just little things where you pick up on it. Whereas in like third man, you don't really, I, there was nothing in that movie where I'm like questioning anything. This one has those. And then for me, and maybe you can clarify it, there's some stuff with Quinlan, with his character motivation when he kind of crosses into the other side and becomes the antagonist of the movie. And he joins up with the Grande brother. He has that conversation with him in the bar. And it kind of felt like you didn't, at least in the version I watched it, maybe it was explained more in the Orson Welles cut, but that you didn't kind of really feel his motivation for suddenly taking that next step and becoming the full-fledged corrupt cop. Because you never, the movie kind of explains him, Quinlan, like, yeah, he's sort of the kind of cop that would frame somebody, but not... At least his partner makes it feel that way. And yes, he idolizes Quinlan. So there's some of that in there. But it's not like he's framing just an innocent person earlier in his career. That's how I took the interpretation of that one scene between Charlton Heston and uh, his partner in the little records room. But that they would have the guy and they would go ahead and plant evidence. So they 100% got the guy. That's kind of like he was kind of right on the edge of being corrupt. He kind of crossed the line. And then all of a sudden, he's basically full-on in, wants to bring Vargas down and do this awful stuff to his wife. And it's like, I don't know, that part of the movie felt like wonky, muddled to where you're kind of confused about it a little bit. You're like, okay, I get that that was how they established his character, that he's kind of this menacing thing, but it's tough to go from a guy who's basically doing his thing his way, and he's borderline racist to Charlton Heston's Vargas through the whole thing and these other Mexicans that he deals with. And then suddenly he's going full-fledged with his plan from this other criminal element from Mexico. You watch the other version. Does it clarify it more? Not that I needed it spelled out, if that makes sense. You know, I'm not, I didn't need it to be like the character goes, oh, my God, this is my moment to get paid and make lots of money, which is what I interpreted it as. It, yeah. just, it just seemed like there was a little bit of connecting tissue that kind of needed to be in there somewhere. Well, I don't know if this was in the version that you were watching, but the DVD that I have, which is the recut with Orson Welles' original vision, there were several references that he made throughout the film to his deceased wife, that she had been strangled. 
So towards the end of the film, when, you know, he's being reported and, you know, they're trying to capture his confession on, on the tape. So towards the end of the film, when Menzies and Vargas are secretly recording him, they're recording Menzies and Orson Welles having their conversation. He asks him, I suppose you thought about your wife being strangled when you killed him. And he said, I think about my wife being strangled all the time, drunk or sober. So you have to wonder how much that factors into some of the decisions that he makes. Why does he turn to help out? Like I said, I, it's stuff like that you get, but it feels like what is the thing that pushed him over? Or was this his whole plan to go act for it? It felt like he didn't even know who Vargas was. And then suddenly he wants to bring this guy down and do all this. It's, you know what I mean? It's, I get what you're saying. And I got that in the movie. I was like, okay, it makes sense why he would, but it's like, okay, why? Why now? Why? What's the thing here that's pushing you over the edge? It might have had something to do with the fact that the Vargas character was Mexican, and the okay. explosion actually occurred on the Mexican side of the border, right? No, it was on the, oh, it was on the American, American side. side, but they put the bomb in the Mexican side. That's what it was. That's, that's how that's it was. There was that competition over whose jurisdiction it was. Yeah. Well, I was just going to say, as I mentioned, this is... Really, what we're talking about is just nitpicky. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's <laughs> it's just a little thing, but it, it's kind of the stuff that, for me, it just holds it back a little bit. I wonder if his, I think there was in him inherent racism mm -hmm. against Vargas, you know, for being Mexican. I think there was a lot of misogyny in his part, too. Ironically enough, you know, after what happened to his wife, what he does to the Janet Lee character. I mean, Janet Lee's character in the last 20 to 30 minutes of the film What's the right way of putting it? I mean, she deals with a lot. For all of her aggression at the beginning of the film, that all just seemed to disappear. Now, sensitive question I do realize, so be forewarned that this is going to go into unpleasant territory, but I interpreted that scene where they all go into her hotel room, I interpreted that to be a gang rape. What was the idea that they okay. injected drugs into her? The first time I had ever seen Kaja Evil, I interpreted the same way. I thought, okay, they raped her, basically, and then took her out. This. But after watching it again this time and really paying attention to it so I could bring my A-game to this podcast, I, there were a couple of times where the female in the gang references that they did it just for a show or they made it look real or something to that effect, like they blew the, <laughs> the reefer. <laughs> they <laughs> blow the smoke on her so she would smell like it, and they would they made it a show. So I don't know if that's, again, that's very ambiguous. Did they, or did they just make it look that way to enhance her downfall in the eye of what would be the downfall of Vargas and her? I'm going to jump forward to the two trivia questions that I have for you. All right. And there's a reason why I'm shifting gears and doing this now, which will make sense in okay. a minute. So I have a total of two trivia questions for you. One from each film. All right. First, The Third Man. In The Third Man, in the scene in the amusement park, Harry notes that turbulent Italy produced Michelangelo, Da Vinci, and the Renaissance, while peaceful Switzerland had produced what? The cuckoo clock, my good man. You are a fan. It's a great speech. And my second question, Touch of Evil... Susan, played by Janet Lee, is brought to an isolated motel where she encounters the extremely jittery nightman who brings her fresh sheets for her bed, even though he refuses to make the bed because that's the day guy's job. Name another skittish motel worker <laughs> that a character played by Janet Lee encounters two years later in 1960, and I have a hint for you. You and I did a Silver Screeners episode on this film. Norman? <laughs> Good old Norman Bates. But yes, of course, it's Psycho. I do have a couple of fun facts for Touch of Evil. It was named Best Film at the 1958 Brussels World Fair, but in the United States, the film opened on the bottom half of a double bill, failed, and put an end to Orson Welles' prospects of working within the studio system ever again. I mean, Orson Welles, he was ahead of his time. He was so far ahead of his time. It's amazing. And Hollywood, they couldn't handle him. I mean, he couldn't handle Hollywood. I was watching some behind the scenes, or no, just some interviews about it. And they had an older interview with Charlton Heston. And he made a very interesting analogy for Orson Welles. And I thought, man, that makes sense. But he said that Orson Welles was sort of an artist 
stuck in a medium where he didn't control process. So he said, you know, if Picasso wanted to paint and he couldn't afford to paint, he would go get a job or Michelangelo, whatever they could afford. Or you could, if you were an artist, a painter, you could bag groceries and buy your paint and make your art. Whereas Orson Welles made his art, but then he had all these people that picked part and he would butt heads with them and he was defiant. And that, that hurt his career, obviously, in the narrow view of it. But in the broader view of it, as we look back as film fans now, you look at him and you go, oh, this guy was amazingly ahead of his time. It's almost like Touch of Evil walked so that modern day movies could run. I would I would just add an asterisk beside that and say, and again, I don't want to lump all of modern directors and sound like an old man yelling at clouds into some category here because there are some really great directors nowadays. But Orson wasn't doing these amazing shots to go look at me i'm amazing look what i can do with a camera and i can do this great tracking shot just to prove that i can do it everything he's doing is vital to what's going on in the movie that tracking shot at the beginning is telling you a story visually it's visual filming it's visual filming it's visual storytelling that's what a movie is and i love it it's showy in a way now that we look at it because we're film geeks and we're like oh my god it's so amazing you did that but again i don't think orson welles was saying oh look we'll do this to wow the audience because clearly he was you know, he was not a very financially successful filmmaker. Obviously, through this, he, he had a very weird career, but he's not doing that to be showy. He's doing that from the storytelling point of view. And that's sort of a little bit, I think, what's different nowadays. I think some, I don't want to say lower level directors, but, you know, you know, the ones, you know, kind of hired gun directors that do action. Movies. They're doing that stuff for visual flair to wow you while you're watching the movie not tell you a story. And that's, to me, that's the asterisk there. I mean, yeah, he was doing it to walk so that they could run, but he was also doing it in a way that they, a lot of them are, they don't get. Do you want me to, I got trivia questions for you. Would you like them, sir? There's one I can't wait to ask you. I'm going to ask last because I really love this question I came up with. Eek. Um, Lay it on me. Okay. <laughs> Let's start with the third man. The end of the movie. All right. So the whole movie Holly is this, as you mentioned, he's an author of these Western novels. And Major Calloway has never read any of them, doesn't know anything about this guy. The sergeant, he's read a few of them. Well, uh, towards the end of the movie, after that, not towards the end. Well, after they go to the hospital and he takes Holly to that hospital, they're riding back in the Jeep. Major Calloway says he read one of his books. Which book was it, sir? Oh, you bastard. <laughs> Did I get you? I think I might have got him on this one. How the West was won. No, <laughs> I don't think he wrote How the West was won. It was the Oklahoma Kid. The Oklahoma Kid. That was my next guess. <laughs> I got two from A Touch of Evil. There is a scene in Touch of Evil where Vargas is making a phone call from a little shop that is run by a blind woman. All right. Well, while Vargas is on the phone, there is a sign that is featured prominently in the frame about the store or something someone might do in this store. How about that? No public restrooms? <laughs> nice guess, but no. Uh, it says, if you are mean enough to steal from the blind, help yourself. Uh, uh, that was a tough one. I, I'm gonna, that was a that good was, one, though. Super tough one. This is my ultimate trivia question. So we have a, what you say, extended cameo from Marlena Dietrich in this movie? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Who does a better Marlena Dietrich? Marlena Dietrich or Madeline Kahn? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm going to have to go with Madeline Kahn because anything Madeline Kahn <laughs> does turns to gold. The whole time Marlena Dietrich was in this movie, all I could see was Madeline Kahn. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Chris, I want to thank you for taking the time out of your evening to be here and to talk about these two films noir, to talk about the great Orson Welles, to share your insights, mostly to share your enthusiasm. Thank you. And I want to make sure you get the chance to plug your own show, your own projects, how people can reach you on socials. Well, I appreciate that. Uh, my podcast is called The Movie Cycle Podcast, and it's on all of the major podcasting services, Apple, Spotify, Good Pods, all that fun stuff. You can find me on Instagram at The Movie Psycho. I'm on Twitter at Psycho Movie. I also have a website, themoviepsycho.com. You can listen to older episodes. You also get in touch with me through that. Coming up, I'm going to do a review for the newest Avatar movie, Avatar 2. 
And then heading into next year, I'm going to pay homage to one of my favorite podcasts out there as I discuss some, I don't want to say old movies, because Frank will never have me back on this podcast. Some classic movies as I count down, <laughs> I think it was it the 52 greatest movies, according to IMDb. And hopefully Frank will come on for many of those movies, because I love having him on my show. I love talking to him in general, and I haven't had him on my show as much as I've been on his. So we've got to make up for that. Again, Frank, thank you for letting me come on the show and talk about this and because it kind of rekindled my fire for Orson Welles. And I'm going to go back and watch several of his movies and enjoy some classic, amazing filmmaking. Thank you very much. Thank you. I can't wait to do it again. That was Chris from the Movie Cycle Podcast, and I want to thank him again for making the time for this recording. So check out his show. What do you say we hop in that sweet-looking car from Touch of Evil and head over to the results of this week's online poll? The poll for this episode, which, as always, is posted to my socials, asked for your opinion on Orson Welles as a filmmaker. Does he deserve to be called one of the best ever? A. Absolutely hell yes. B. He's fine. He's okay. Not bad. C. Nah, he's overrated. And D. What's an Orson Welles? On Twitter... 20% voted for B, with 80% going for A, so the Wells love is alive on that social media platform. And on the Silver Screeners Facebook group, two votes went to A, absolutely hell yes. Six to B, he's fine, he's okay, not bad. Mary C. singles out Citizen Kane as overrated. And in an interesting but most welcome turn of events, Andrea C. chose D, what's an Orson Wells, but added an option, an E, which was... He was no Billy Wilder. So, taken all together, option B squeaks to victory by one vote for a total of seven. Thank you to everyone who voted and for playing along gamely with these polls, which are simply meant to generate interest in each upcoming episode. And keep your eyes open to my socials for the next poll. Just check out the Silver Screeners group on Facebook, or you can follow me on Twitter at FilmBuff1974, as well as Instagram at FrankMendoza1974, or simply email SilverScreenersPod at gmail.com. And now it's time to head on over to the trivia segment. This is the 77th episode of this show, so that makes this the 77th trivia question that's directly, and sometimes indirectly, related to the movies or the people in them. Please don't hesitate to take a crack at it at any time. I announce the first name and last initial of anyone who sends in a response, whether it's right or wrong. And in addition to a shout-out in the next episode, if you provide your email, you'll get a movie-related meme sent your way with a personalized greeting. And every trivia question is up for grabs, meaning you could be listening to episode 15, or 45, or 75, and it's never too late. You'll get your meme and your shout-out no matter how recent or far back the question is. And if you're a creator, if you write music, design websites, podcasts, if you write, if you're a YouTuber, I gotcha. I'm always happy to give your stuff a shout-out. So here we go. In the last episode, Stu and Al of the Stu and Al pod joined me to talk about our favorite film adaptations of A Christmas Carol. Al stood firm in his conviction that 1992's A Muppet Christmas Carol is the best, and that led to the trivia question, which was, The Muppets were rebooted in 2011 with the feature film simply called The Muppets, starring Jason Segel as Gary, brother of a new Muppet named Walter. Name the actress who plays Gary's girlfriend, Mary. She sings and dances in the film, and she's a six-time Academy Award nominee. And the answer is... Amy Adams. And in no particular order, permit me to make like a dealer at Vegas and toss out these shout-outs. The great Mary C. brings her unparalleled trivia victories over into the new year. Mary, looking forward to you continuing to do your movie trivia thing throughout 2023. Next... If I had a crown, I would place it on the head of regular movie trivia champ, faithful listener, fellow podcaster, and friend, DJ Nick from the Gold Standard Oscars podcast. Check out his and his co-hosts, Rachel and Zan's latest episode on 1994's Forrest Gump. They always bring on the goods in their show. And this episode's guest, my buddy Chris, who says that Amy Adams should have won the Oscar for a rival. Well, Chris, yes, yes, and yes. Huzzah, booyah, woot woot, bingo, and any other verbal form of agreement. Thanks to all of you. Keep your eyes open for those memes, and to anyone else listening, no time like the present. Join the trivia. It's fun, easy, and does not cost you a cent. And why not begin with this episode's trivia? 
The musical score for 1958's Touch of Evil was done by four-time Oscar winner Henry Mancini. One of his wins was for the song called Moon River for what 1961 film starring the incomparable Audrey Hepburn? Send in your answers, and as always, if you have any follow-up questions or have any comments on anything from today's episode or any episode that you've listened to, just hit me up on my socials. Once again, that would be FilmBuff1974 on Twitter, the film group Silver Screeners on Facebook, Frank Mendoza 1974 on Instagram, or email silverscreenerspod at gmail.com. And that brings episode 77 to a rousing finish. As always, thank you. Thank you to everyone who's listening, has ever listened, or who will in the future be listening. Be sure to hit that subscribe button if you haven't already. Please don't hesitate to give Silver Screeners a rating on Apple, iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Catch you next time. My name is Frank, wishing you good health, good weather, and good movies. And until next time, keep on screening. And I leave you now with the soothing sounds of the voting members of the Academy Awards as they fled in holy terror from Orson Welles losing his shit as he yielded the Best Picture and Best Director trophies to the widely loved classic, the fondly remembered staple of film class viewings, the regularly revived crowd pleaser. How green was my valley? <laughs>